0: I'd like to read something. My bowl is empty. My hunger is satisfied. I vow to live for the benefit of all beings. After we have eaten, we don't need to rush on to the next thing. Instead, we can spend a moment being grateful for the food we have just eaten and all that was necessary to create this moment. Sometimes we show our gratitude before we eat and then move on. But we are as grateful for fullness as we are for the moment before we eat. Living peacefully and happily is the best way to show our gratitude and our greatest gift for the world and the next generation. How we eat can model so much to those around us. Our children need our happiness, not our money. If we know how to live happily with each other, the children will learn it from us. This is the greatest inheritance we can hand down to our children. The meal we just received, reminds us that we need real food and drink to sustain our lives. Food and drink that is beneficial, not just empty spiritual calories. Especially this week as we make our way to the cross, once again, we see clearly that life is about more than meets the eye. We go with Jesus to the cross and drink. We drink a real cup of the new creation. Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's Word today. Our Father, we drink this cup willingly, even if we are a little afraid of the things of this world, but we trust you, and we give thanks to you for the example of Jesus who goes before us. It is in Jesus' name that we approach you today and proclaim your Word in this oncoming world without end. Amen. Amen. As someone who spent my teenage years in the 1980s, I wore some things that I am not proud to admit (laughs) that I wore. Big neon shoelaces, overly long scarves, and that one year when we wore ties with t-shirts. But I can say with complete confidence that I am delighted to admit that I never once owned or wore a pair of designer jeans, never once. After all, 1 Corinthians 10.23 proclaims, all things are permissible but not all things are beneficial. May be available, but then you have to ask is it really beneficial? Maybe, since this was around the time that I started taking Christianity seriously, maybe that's why I never wore designer jeans. That in poverty. Is it available? Sure. Is it beneficial? Not so much. So for early Christianity, one of the measures of everyday behavior was not, am I allowed to do this? But rather, is it beneficial? Another way, in the same book of 1 Corinthians, another way that that's put is, does this build up? And so as we make our way to the cross this week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday next week, one thing that may build up your faith is to consider that unlike almost every other person in history, Jesus did not do any of this for personal gain. In fact, not only did he not ask people for anything in return for himself, he in fact lost his life, at least according to earthly standards. And I'm fascinated by the way John tells this story. He takes us straight from Jesus' long prayer right into Jesus' arrest. The details and all the people of John 18, 1 through 11, seem to invite us into the story in a way that asks us some questions that are bigger than our immediate experience. Questions that concern our long lives, our eternal lives, the big picture. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it that you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied." I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John assumes that we already know the story. Even that one of Jesus' own disciples named Judas is the betrayer who set this story in motion. But then John gives us these little details that make us wonder, why is he giving us all of these little details? Some of which actually don't have answers. Some that do have answers, such as, who is it you want? Soldiers and chief priests and Pharisees are all walking together, a strange mix of people. And can you picture Rambo, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Billy Graham all walking together to arrest Jesus? Is this not a bit odd? And then John tells us that all of them are carrying, did you hear it, torches and lanterns and weapons Jesus knows what's going to happen I mean that may be miraculous but it could also be because he knows the hearts of those who hate him Jesus answers their question and for some reason they draw back and fall on the ground isn't that interesting He even asks them the question a second time, which again, I think, is John's trying to tell us something, trying to invite us into the story, and then Peter cuts a guy's ear off, uh, which is pretty graphic, even on a Tarantino level. Peter and Malcolm. Peter and Malchus, two servants who both think they're doing the right thing, neither of which is doing the right thing. You ever thought about that? Two people on opposite sides of an issue who are both doing the wrong thing. And then Jesus tells the person on his side, Not the soldiers and chief priests and Pharisees with their weapons, mind you, but Peter on his own team. Put your sword away. We are on Jesus' team, right? In what ways is Jesus telling us today to put our swords away? What are the designer genes of church life that we're wearing around still? That we're going to look back on and not feel quite so attached to later on. In what ways is Jesus trying to get us to drop our approach of, is it allowed, into a more mature approach of, is it beneficial? Does this build up? Will this draw people closer to God, or will it make them feel further and further away from God? But it is Jesus's twice-asked question that we really need to deal with today as Jesus ushers in the new creation in the most unlikely of ways. The new creation as a road to the cross. Not once, but twice. Jesus asks, who is it you want? Is Jesus asking the soldiers, the chief priests, the Pharisees? See, I'm not so sure. I'm wondering if Jesus is not asking someone else. Jesus asks, who is it you want? We live in a world... Too many choices, too many competing allegiances, too much confusion that leaves us feeling overwhelmed, even as we try to choose which loaf of bread is going to taste good but is also good for us. And I mean, I stand in the bread aisle of the grocery store and I hear the echoes of 1 John 2.17, the world and its desires. Pass away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world and its desires pass away, but dude, they're putting up quite a fight. But not Jesus. He could have put up a fight. But instead... He goes down a path of truth that looks nothing like what we are going down these days. It's as though Jesus' question is more relevant today than the night he asked them. And the meaning of it has changed. Because we can choose from so many people to spend our time thinking about. Celebrities who post pictures to make their lives look just perfect. Politicians who promise to make everything just right for just me. And salespeople who want us to buy that one item that is finally going to satisfy all of our cravings. And so we have a choice to make on this entry day into the week that will lead us to Easter, to the cross, and to the resurrection of the one true living Jesus. This Jesus who invites us to say amen, not to a sermon or a prayer, but an amen to the promise of a new creation, a world without end. Amen. In John 18:7 the them mentioned by John becomes us. We are them. The words of John and Jesus in John 18:7 again he asked them and us who is it you want